Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Before we get started, Byron, I was just... uh looking at the time zone differences here. I know you're in Pittsburgh. I didn't realize that uh, that Pennsylvania was a, a commonwealth or designated as a commonwealth. I thought that was a yoke only that we uh, once and former colonists labored under. I didn't know that it extended to Pennsylvanians too. It's one of those things that goes back to colonial days, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Commonwealth of Virginia, and the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And then there are 46 states and four commonwealths, although Puerto Rico is considered a commonwealth as well as I think you could. It has colonial roots. I used to know the answer to that, or I used to have an explanation for it, but I I actually don't recall why that is. It just (laughs) Just Ben Franklin-ish kind of things or something. One of those historical anachronisms, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, Byron, you and I have known each other for a little while now, longer than uh, oh, wow. l- longer than I care to to mention. I don't want to date our young, dapper-looking selves, but you <laughs> are a uh, you are a a man who wears many hats: a historian, an energy investor, a um, international uh, geopolitical commentator. For listeners who uh, who perhaps recognize your name and probably they've seen you around the traps for the last. Oh, a couple of decades, I'd say, writing alongside Bill and some other well-known uh, cast of characters throughout the newsletter publishing world. Do you want to just fill us in a little bit by way of a bio to get started and and maybe uh, talk us through up and until how you got to meet Bill and, uh, and came to uh, working with and writing alongside him? Okay, thanks very much, Joel. It's really a pleasure to speak with you and, and certainly to be on your podcast. Um, I have been part of the Agora Familia since I, I believe around 2002 in one way or another. I've been on the payroll. I was on the payroll at Agora from about 2007. And so that makes 15 years. Um, before I met Bill Bonner uh, as a subscriber, I was just a reader of the Daily Reckoning. And one day I was reading my reckonings and he made some comment. This is about 2002 or so. And he made a comment about the war in Afghanistan. And I said, I hadn't I was just a reader. I was Joe Reader out there. And I was a free reader. In fact, I wasn't even paying for it. And I, you know, and I thought, ah, you know, I have a bunch of friends just got back from Afghanistan. And I know a few things about what's going on over there. So I sent him a little email, you know, dear Bill Bonner, we've never met. You don't know me, but I have a bunch of friends just got back from Afghanistan. Here's what's really going on. You know, and, and so we had a next thing you know, we had this discussion going on. Next thing I know, he's printing my emails to him in the Daily Reckoning. And uh, and I beca- I was his friend, you know. Yeah, and yeah. then eventually I became his friend in Pittsburgh because I, <laughs> and then I was, I was, a, you know, I was a dear friend. I'm like, oh my goodness, this, this is you're, starting to warm you're, up you're here. Moving, you're you know, moving up the ladder here, room, whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, next thing you know, uh, 
you know, we started having this very nice correspondence. Then one day I went to one of the Agora conferences, uh, uh, you know, the, the Vancouver investment yep. conference. Yep. And I talked to Addison Wigan, you know, an old name from the past there. He's still around, doing yep. doing well. And I said, That's I right. said, oh, Addison, hi, I'm Byron King. I'm your unpaid correspondent in Pittsburgh. And he says, That's oh, right. I'm, do something about that. Cor- yeah, unpaid so correspondent. I remember do that. that. <laughs> I said, would you be interested in, in starting to, in writing for us? And, you know, we'll pay you. I'm like, yeah, sure. Just like freelance. Yeah. Okay. So I started writing whiskey and gunpowder with Dan Denning, who we know. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Jim Amrine. He's, he's still around as well. Absolutely. And myself. And uh, then so I said, what do you want me to write about? And he said, well, you seem to know a lot about energy and military stuff. And I said, just kind of write about that. So my first article I ever wrote, you know, for uh, whiskey was the ghost of Colonel Drake. Mm. You know, Colonel Drake being 1859, drilled the well in Titusville and, you know, the kind of the the, the birthplace, the DNA of the modern, you know, oil industry, although people in Canada say they drilled an earlier well and people in West Virginia say they drilled an earlier well, but, you know, it, but Colonel Drake gets the credit, you know. Um, and so we started, you know, whiskey and gunpowder, I would write about energy and the oil industry and uh, we were writing about military things, U.S. strategy. I mean, the war in Iraq, you know, I mean, there were, I mean, there were times, I, w- I remember this one article I wrote about uh, from uh, uh, about the, the Sicilian invasion of, uh, of, of ancient, ancient, when ancient Greece, you know, when the mm-hmm. Athenians invaded S- Sicily and somebody says, why are you writing about, you know, the Athenians sailing across the Mediterranean to invade Sicily? And I said, I'm really not writing about, you know, the Athenians <laughs> across the Mediterranean to invade Sicily. I'm writing about the war in Iraq. I'm writing about the this war is, in Afghanistan. Yeah, this is, a, this, is, this is actually a Trojan horse for me to get my point across to go yeah, back to know, the Greeks. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, so I would write about Herodotus and I would write about, you know, just yeah. <laughs> interesting. But it, was, but it was fun. And we had a lot, we, we, we picked up a lot of names. Whiskey and Gunpowder was a highly successful newsletter. And, yeah. uh, and then one day in uh, 2007, you know, the phone rings and I pick it up and it's, someone from Agora and they said, Hey, Byron, he said, the guy that edits our energy and mining pub, you know, outstanding investments, you just quit. You want the job? And I'm like, hmm, right. is it a real job? Like, yeah. You pay me? <laughs> yeah. So you guys have like healthcare coverage. Yeah. You know, don't give that like, job away. Sounds like a talk. real job. <laughs> so I, I literally, I hung up. I got, this was in the morning, you know, about eight in the morning. I got in the car. I drove to Baltimore, which is about four and a half, five hours depending on traffic. I had lunch. I came home and I told my wife, I said, Hey, I said, I got a new job. She says, What kind of job? So, you know, that, that Agora group down in Baltimore? Yeah. And I said, They, they can give, offer me a job. She's like, Do they pay you? And I said, Yeah. I said, Healthcare <laughs> coverage? Yeah. And she said, yeah. Well, Great, because you hate your other job. So, do this job. So, right. so um, I like that she had the same <laughs> filters as you. It, it gets paid. There is healthcare. <laughs> I get paid. There's healthcare coverage. Right. And, yep, you know, yep. And you know, and we'll, and we'll do some fun things. So, so anyhow, that, that that was 15 years ago, and you know, I'm still around. First time I met you was we actually went to Titusville together. That's I was going to mention that up to five. Yeah, I was think it, it was probably back in 2005 because I'd read that piece that you wrote uh, mm-hmm. in Whiskey, and I, I just kind of mentioned it to you off, you know, somewhat offhandedly, maybe at, you know, on the sidelines of an editorial meeting or something where we fleshed out these ideas and. And uh, yeah, within a week, you had sort of sent an invitation saying, "Hey, um, if you're if you're keen on having a look at this, why don't you come on up and we'll we'll do an old school dynamite uh, frack?" And I've got some buddies in the industry who can show us around. And and yeah, that was a that was a real hoot, uh, a blast, I dare say. <laughs> it, 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 uh, you know, you, you were up there, and uh, one or two others. I, I had I had my two 
two children with me. That's right. Uh, and we went up to Titusville. It was a beautiful, gorgeous fall uh, afternoon. The trees were beautiful, gorgeous <laughs> leaves of Western Pennsylvania. And we go out to this, this uh, an oil well, a working oil well. And, and I knew these fellows. And they were they were doing an old time. Um, well, it was an early frack, but it was a, it was an old it was an old time exploding the well. Literally, they, yeah. they would drop a, a a charge down there. They, they called it a torpedo, and they would drop it down to the to the oil bearing zone, and then they they covered it with water, you know, to keep the well from blowing up out of the hole. And boom, they exploded and they they fractured the well. And that's they started doing that in the 1860s. There was a some, some colonel or some general from the Union Army got wounded uh, in battle in the Civil War. He couldn't be in the army anymore, so he came back, but he knew a lot about explosives, so he went to work mm -hmm. in the oil fields, and so they came up with it. So fracking, in a sense, has been around for a long time, although today with hydraulic fracking, it's it's quite different than exploding things. But, sure. but that, that was, you know, for all the listeners, readers, whatever who are out there, viewers out there, that was, you know, just a, that's, that's an old story. It was a fascinating old story, and that's how we started. That's how we really kind of, uh, you know, got up close and personal to the yeah. to the oil fields, you know? For sure, and that's it's very interesting because that uh, that dovetails very nicely into something that uh, I, I want to get into with you here, and that is an email that you sent around, kind of you know like like the old days, send on a letter, and it, it uh, you know kind of spawns oh all these different branches here down here in South America. We say to ir por las ramas to go for the go for the branches, but. Anyway, the, the email that you sent on earlier in the week, and I've, I've got uh, the article here, was linking to a, uh, a column um, that cited a Goldman, well-known Goldman commodities analyst, Jeff Curry, who's been around the traps for goodness, I think 30 odd years, maybe more, uh, very well known. And he said, um, you know, he's been examining the commodities markets of which you're very familiar mm -hmm. uh, and said he hasn't seen anything like it in his entire career. And I want to get this quote right here because it's it's a it's a pretty powerful one. He says, here it is. I've been doing this for 30 years, never seen markets like this. And here's the key takeaway. This is a molecule crisis, he said. We're running out of everything. I don't care if it's oil, gas, coal, copper, aluminum, you name it, we're out of it. Uh, and I guess we're starting to see that ref reflecting itself in prices across the board with you know, oil at its highest uh, mark since what 2014, I think. Um, a basket of of commodities covered by Bloomberg, a couple of dozen of them, from ags to metals to energy, all across the spectrum, where we're really, really ramping up here. So, I guess first, is is that similar to your reading? Uh, you know, with with your experience in the commodities markets, these big shortages that are that are driving prices. What 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 do you see when you look out across the horizon? Well, you know, I mean, I, I'm I'm old enough to have been around, you know, for a, a few things, you know, a few. Uh, there are cycles, you know, and then there are like really, you know, humongous cycles, and we're we're in a humongous cycle. Not to say that it won't be resolved, but you know, I, I mean, as people say, the cure to high prices is high prices, the cure to low prices is low prices. But but there's more to it than that, really, because uh, you know we're we're changing the whole uh, investment paradigm in industry, you know, in, 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 in what has passed for the Industrial Revolution for the last 200 years. I mean, when, when Colonel Drake drilled his well, getting back to, you know, the 1859 and Colonel Drake, I mean, people lit their houses with whale oil, you know, I mean, the petroleum was this exotic stuff that they skimmed off of creeks and they sold it as a patent medicine. And, you know, 
there was no petroleum. So, so to the modern mind or the modern, you know, a lot of people think, oh, there's no petroleum. I guess there were no gasoline engines. I couldn't drive to the mall. Yeah, that's right. You didn't have any internal combustion engines and you couldn't drive to the mall. But there was no mall. And when you got to the mm-hmm. mall that wasn't there, there was no, you know, stores selling, you know, uh, clothing made out of, you know, plastics. And you didn't have natural gas to heat your house. And you didn't have electricity to, you know, to for your for your light, for, you know, to, to illuminate. And and uh, the industrial age has been, a, a you know, a coal age, but a petroleum age as well, you know, because... You, you can't have you can't have electric wire without copper, but you can't have it without something to wrap around the copper, which is plastic. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know, you can't, uh, um, you know, much of the world's oil doesn't go to people just you know, driving their cars to the mall. I mean, a big part of it goes to the trucks that haul everything around to the ships that sail everything around to the airplanes that fly everything around to the plastics and to the to the. Uh, uh, you know, to, to to the to the precursor materials that go into everything that that you wear. You know, uh, uh, you know. The, I mean, the the buttons on your shirt, the you know, the the soles on your shoes. I mean, um, every molecule, everywhere. It's, it's everything. The meta, the medicines. You, you you think you're taking an antibiotic, and you know, okay, you can label it as that. But if you really go back to where it all started, that antibiotic began in an oil well somewhere. You know, because wow. the the materials in which they 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 the medium in which they grew the you know the bugs that they that they wound up pressing into it that the little plastic bottle that it came in. I mean, if you didn't have that, you'd have you would we would live in a very different world. Actually, we wouldn't we wouldn't be here. Somebody else would be here because <laughs> it would have you know gone off once. It would be some yeah. alternative universe. So you know, so, is there a shortage so of you- molecules? Yeah, of course, of of, of of everything, and we can get into that. You know. Yeah, for sure. And so, so I guess you know, right out the gate, an, an obvious question presents itself, and that is, what do we, you know, what do you, as someone who is is a trained geologist at uh, one of those fringe institutions, I think it was Harvard uh, University, yeah, 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 one of those wild, wild, wild and crazy place. <laughs> so, what do you say to people who, um, you know, who essentially advocate for a world in which all of those processes, those very, very careful processes that you just outlined in which we take these raw materials, these petroleum-based materials, and turn them into finished goods and all of the you know, energy inputs that are needed along that value chain, uh, what do you say to people who want to go back to an, an era pre that, to a, a so-called carbon neutral uh, era? I mean, it, it seems like we're, we're kind of asking for trouble there. Oh, they're not just asking for it. They're <laughs> calling in the artillery on their own yeah. position. I mean, it's, I, I mean it, it, it's, it's completely, totally destructive. I mean, if you want to say, you know, we need to be better about using our energy. Yeah. You want to be more efficient about energy. Yeah. You want to, mm. you know, want to, you know, want to change lifestyle. Well, yeah. Except when it comes to changing lifestyles. I mean, you know, how, how do you plan to do that? You know, are you going to you know, lock the world down for two years and and hold everybody at the point of a gun, and you know, and if they, you know, drive their, you know, if they drive their trucks in front of your parliament building and honk their horns, you're going to arrest them all or something, you know. I mean, I mean, how do you how do you plan to really get this done, other than to you know make life miserable for everybody, you know, as uh, to to sort of borrow from Ernest Hemingway, slowly and then all at once, you know. Um, and so, uh, uh, it, I mean, that that's a very 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 long talk, you know. I mean. Um, yeah. I mean, before we come on, I, I, meant, I showed you a. This is a piece of uh, copper. This is elemental copper. 
literally chopped out of the ground with a with a with a rock hammer. This is a rock hammer, which helps to prove that I'm a geologist. But yeah, there we literally go. <laughs> chopped out of the ground in the Keweenaw Peninsula, the upper peninsula of, of Michigan. There, um, this is element. I mean, this is copper. America's first mining boom was in uh, the 1840s in Upper Michigan, uh, the Upper Peninsula, where people went up there and literally chopped this stuff up. This is the copper that you know that that era of America used for its tea kettles and to line its ships and to you know for to make its wagon wheels and you know make copper nails to you know hold the shingles down on people's you know slate roofs and stuff like that. Um, yeah, we don't have this anymore. Well, I mean, you can find it as a as an exotic specimen every now and then. Mm -hmm. This this is this is ninety nine percent copper. Today, copper mining people are mining fractions of a percent of grade of copper. You know, wow. how do you mine fractions of a grade of copper? Well, you go to a mountain somewhere in the Andes, you know, big mountain in the Andes, and you put all sorts of explosives in the ground, and you know, and you blow it up, and you haul this rock out, and you in great big huge trucks, and you crush it and you process it and you go through all sorts of chemistry and eventually at the end you wind up with copper that with which you make you know your electric wire or whatever um if you don't have um if, if you don't but if but every, at every step of the way you know the explosive the de, the the trucks the, the the facility where they crush it the facility where they process it the facility where they turn it into copper you know the you know the, all the trucking along the way the ships that haul it across the ocean or whatever if you don't have uh, some sort of uh stored energy in the form of hydrocarbon or various materials that come from hydrocarbon for your chemicals that's not going to happen so people will say well we're just going to go to electric cars your electric car uses about four times, maybe five times as much copper as your normal conventional internal combustion car, you know? So, so I mean, mm -hmm. you're, you're talking about increasing, just in the auto sector, you're kind of increasing the use of copper by 4X and 5X. So when the man says there's not enough copper, that's part of what he means, you know? Right, um, right. And that's just one, of, says, of course, that's just one metal. This is just one element we're talking one about. One element on the periodic yep. table, yeah. Right. That's just, I mean, we could go to other things. I mean, if you want to do exotic stuff, I mean, um, you know, this is a these, this is a specimen here of uh, of uh, this is a titanium ore. This is rutile, it, wow. t t titanium dioxide. Uh, this is a beautiful specimen. I mean, I have no way I'm going to throw this one in the crusher. These, <laughs> these crystals are as big as my thumb. I mean, you know, if you want if you want this thing, I'll, you know, maybe I'll take two thousand bucks for it as a mineral specimen. But I, but it's not for sale, you know. And so, yep. uh, but where, where, where does this come from? Well, th this came from Graves Mountain, Georgia. Uh, okay. Again, you know, for with chopped out with with my hammer. Uh, it's it's a unique geologic, you know, locale, uh, and you know, but but we don't have any of these anymore. When I say we, pretty much anywhere in the world, you don't find this stuff anymore. Maybe one or two here and there. You can go to Graves Mountain on a on a Saturday afternoon dig and maybe you know dig out a few of these things. But you know, most of the world's titanium, uh, you know, comes from. Uh, you know, very, very disseminated uh, uh, mineral mineralization. And, uh, you know, and but where, you know, what do you use titanium for? Well, it's everything from white in the white paint uh, all the way to landing gear on airplanes. You know, so mm -hmm. where does most of the world's titanium come from? Well, it comes from Russia, you know, you know, so let's let's all, let's all get mad at Russia. Let's all blame Russia for everything so that they can, you know, shut off titanium and turn, turn you know, they'll shut down Boeing in about three days, you know, if we don't have any titanium to build the jets with, you know. So, uh, I mean, so that, it's, 
But now we now we've covered two elements on the tree. Right. There's ninety there's ninety others, you know. So, so we've got a couple of. I mean, you've you've touched on a, on a few points here, but but a couple of key takeaways thus far, I think, is a you can you know we're not just raking this stuff up off the front lawn anymore. These are hugely energy intensive processes in order to be able to you know, get this stuff from, uh, you know, whatever highly pressurized cavern it is, uh, subterranean, uh, you know, extreme environment up to whether it's, you know, painting your walls or driving your car, what have you. But the the second uh, component and from the Andes and to Russia, you've now mentioned, is not all of these, uh, these elements, these raw materials are in uh, geopolitically friendly jurisdictions which adds a huge price premium or at least a certain amount of market volatility that might be, you know, this kind of at, at the whims of, of uh, you know, just hoping things go the way that you want them to go, but that's not always the case. Yeah, and, and, and it's, there's, there's, two th- there's two angles to that geopolitically unfriendly jurisdictions. There are the geopolitically unfriendly jurisdictions where, you know, their government has contrary interests to our government. You know, there, there's that kind of thing. But then there are the geopolitically unfriendly jurisdictions like, oh, Minnesota, where you know <laughs> a, a very significant uh, mine for copper, nickel, cobalt. Uh, there's several different proposals in Minnesota have all been shot down. They've all been you know killed off by the environmental you know the environmental lobby. Uh, another geopolitical jurisdiction, California. You know, you yeah, try opening new mines in, in California. Yeah, okay, Nevada, you can mine. Montana, you know, you know Idaho is iffy. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, uh, you know, um, the U.S. and to some extent Canada, even Canada, has become an unfriendly place to, to try to do any sort of major projects because, you know, it's, it's not just that the, the permitting is so hard. It's that it's the, the, the level of opposition, you know, you, you get mm. sort of, I call it like permanent capital. You know how like BlackRock goes out and buys up entire neighborhoods, uh, buys all the houses and nobody can, you know, you have to rent now. You can never own a house because BlackRock owns them all, you know. Well, you get that same sort of east and west coast, you know, permanent capital, and it funds these environmental lobbies, and they come in, and their job is to stop projects. It doesn't right. matter the mer- the merits of the ore deposit, doesn't matter the merits of the geology, doesn't matter how many water quality analyses you do, how many you know air quality analyses you do, doesn't matter how carefully you're going to run your mine or whatever. And and if you've ever been around a modern mine, you know you'll 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 see the absolute lengths to which you know uh, modern you know, you know the, the modern big guys you know go to to be safe and be careful and not you know be environmental stewards and um and so so there, there's there's those sort of geopolitical issues and you know what and it's not even just a mining thing i mean a lot of people say oh you know we need more titanium oh you know we need more we need more copper here you know it's a mining thing well yeah it's sort of a mining thing the ore deposit is where it is. It's, if it's not there, you can't mine it. If it is there, you still might not be able to mine it. Yeah, right. so it's a mining thing. But then, you know, all you've done when you've blown up the rock and hauled it out in a truck is you've hauled out a bunch of rock. You know, now what? Now you need uh, an entire industrial chain. You need the you need the, you need the the mills. You need the processing facilities. You need the refining facilities. You need the downstream facilities that keep adding value to it, add value, add value, add value. And you know, the people who know how to do this in the world today are there, we call them Chinese, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, we, we often as not, we don't call them Americans. We hardly ever call those kind of people Americans anymore. There are very, very few 
places in America where you can go to school and actually learn about, for example, rare earth refining. You know, I mean, mm. you know, I mean, I mean, there, there, at, at one point there were no places to go. Now there's Colorado School of Mines and a few other uh, places around the country. Uh, China has entire universities that are devoted to teaching people chemistry, metallurgy, hydrometallurgy, you know, extracting these minerals. And they're capturing that part of the value chain. And, and I'll just add one thing, because I know we're going to talk some more of it. Um, you know, China is actually getting out of the mining industry. They don't, they don't want to dig up their ground as much anymore because they've got a huge environmental problems, water problems, you know, food problems. They don't want to do that. They would rather buy the materials, process them in China down, you know, to a certain, you know, value add level, and then sell them to Western companies and sell them with strings attached, saying that if you guys mm. uh, don't you know, build a factory in China. If you don't, you know, share your technology with us, we're not going to sell you the materials you need. You know, that would be the yeah. rare earths, you know, the permanent magnets, the phosphorus for lighting systems, things like that. And, uh, and we, if, we talk about that all day. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And if I'm not mistaken, China has some uh, enormous uh, percentage of, of the world's rare, rare earth deposits, 90 plus percent or something. Is it, am I in the right ballpark there? Or? You, you are absolutely in the right ballpark. I mean, um, you see a lot of figures, and a lot of these figures mm. are fudged figures. You know, you'll see, okay. well, China, you know, used to control ninety-five percent, but now it's only eighty percent. Well, really, it's when you get to the when you get to the sweet spot to the stuff that you can actually, you know, put, have a magnet and put it in the alternator of your car, or have a phosphor mm -hmm. and put it in your light bulb. Things like that. China's back up around. They're way, way, way over ninety, ninety percent. Okay. Uh, what what they're doing is, uh, uh, you know, for example, the in the U.S. You know, there's a company called MP Materials, which mines rare earth ore at a place called Mountain Pass, California. It's a legacy operation going back to the 50s. Otherwise, they would never be able to build it today. But they literally mine the material. They crop, they crush it, they concentrate, they put it on in trucks, they haul it down to the port of Long Beach. And, you know, when those ships get done unloading, you know, in Long Beach and Los Angeles, mm -hmm. they put the material on those ships and they send it back to China. And we never see those molecules again. I mean, though, though, there's no the, China isn't processing those on behalf of MP materials. That's not a, it's not what they call a tolling agreement. They're just selling them the ore. China mm -hmm. gets it. And then, you know, they, then they export it in the form of, you know, high value added materials, whether it's your microwave oven or your air conditioner. or They send know, us the back electric. iPads and uh, and sneakers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's I mean, it's a it. it all of these little, um, you know, these these little tiles add up to a pretty dismal-looking mosaic um, for the future of energy independence uh, in, if not only the U.S. but in in the West uh, as well. So, uh, talk a little bit about how, because you you touched on BlackRock just before and the idea of permanent capital, and they're having such a mammoth share in the market. I'm talking BlackRock and Vanguard and these these gigantic funds when they move into um, the the kind of mindset that is very hard focused on environmental environmentally sustainable governance or ESG is another kind of buzzword uh, around now. When they get you know go long on that type of uh, regulatory framework, what does that do for uh, American energy independence and and how much is it sending um, to, you know folding those cards to jurisdictions abroad? Uh, well, there you go. This is where uh, this is where uh, you know. I, I guess you'd call it postmodernism. You know, the, the philosophical you know postmodernism has trend has has um, transformed itself, or it has beamed itself down 
as sort of this ESG movement. And you get permanent capital, you get really big funds, really big organizations. They own a whole bunch of shares of all these different companies, you know, pick, pick or name, whatever you want. Uh, you had the you had the you had the one fund that owned a, owned enough shares in Exxon that they could influence uh, other shareholders, and they got their people on the board of Exxon. And so all of a sudden, Exxon went from saying, you know, yeah, we're we're an oil and energy company, and you know, this is who we are, and this is what we do, to saying, you know, yeah, well, you know, we're going to be carbon neutral, and we're going to mm. throttle back on this and that. Exxon that was, that was just in the summer of of twenty one, I think, was just, just yeah, three four months ago, yeah, six yep, months, five yep. months ago, yeah. Uh, or, or you look at other big companies, you know, Shell, Shell Oil, the Dutch company, mm-hmm. or BP, you know, British Petroleum, as as it used to be called, you know, as, as as President Obama used to call it during the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the British Petroleum, you know, <laughs> BP is their name, you know, but uh, um, you know, they're they're basically saying, well, okay, you know, okay, if, that, if you know, we don't want to be called names, or we don't want people to think harshly of us, and so we're, we're gonna we're gonna be de-investing in our traditional business opportunity. We're not going to drill as many wells. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to explore as much. We're going to walk away from certain projects. We're going to walk away from this big, huge gas project, you know, off of uh, Mozambique. Or we're going to walk away from this opportunity in off the, in the offshore of Brazil. Or we're gonna... what it means is a that that, that they are in, intentionally, consciously underinvesting in the their business. And you know, mm-hmm. and when you say, well, I, you know, who cares about Exxon? Well, I care about Exxon. I do not own a single share of Exxon. I never, I don't think I ever have. Maybe I bought and sold, I don't know, but but I I do not own a single share of Exxon. But I do care that they produce oil, gas, you know, chemicals, plastics, what have you, you know, because I live in this world, you know. You want to turn the lights uh, on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shoes. I like it when I flip the switch and the lights come on or out. Button you know? your shirt up. Yeah. <laughs> I like to, I like having little blue plastic buttons on my nice shirt right. here, you know. Um so, but when they underinvest, you know, maybe we won't notice it today. No, well, we, you know, we won't notice it today, tomorrow, next week, next month. But if they underinvest for the next year or two, you know, in in by year three, mm-hmm. we're we're going to begin to notice it. Well, guess mm-hmm. what? In you know, first of all, during COVID, there was a lot of underinvestment just because you know people are sick, couldn't you know can't work, can't show up to the office. Nobody, you know, entire areas were just off limits. You can't fly anywhere. You can't drive anywhere. You can't cross borders. There was a lot of underinvestment for two years just because of COVID. And now, what, as we wake up coming out of COVID, you know, because, I mean, the COVID is ending, you know. I mean, it's not over, but it's ending. Uh, that's a whole other discussion. But as we come out of it, we look around and we say, hey, wait a minute. Jeez, oh, man, you know, people have been under under exploring, under drilling, under developing, under, under playing their geophysics, under doing... Yeah, for, for the last two years. And we're, we've got a couple more years of this as we look out on the whole ESG waterfront, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens then? Well, it's, you know, if you don't invest and, you know, go out, explore, drill, find. Um, so what do the markets tell us? What are markets? Say? Well, well, if they we're going to have a shortage of oil in the future, I guess I'll bid oil up to $90 a barrel, maybe 100. How about 110 or 20, you know? I mean, I've seen estimates of oil at $300 a barrel. Of course, when oil's at $300 a barrel, the economy crashes and everybody, you know, everybody gets laid off, you know, but, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. You'll see what the markets do. But then the other angle on that is that when, uh, when you, when a Western oil company walks away from developing a big oil or gas project somewhere, guess who else moves in? You know, either the state oil companies, the national oil companies of, you know, in uh, of those other countries, Chinese capital moves in. You know, China has mm-hmm. plenty of permanent capital as well. You know, they 
Right. They, they can they, they 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 know how to they know how to write checks just as well as you know you know BlackRock and Vanguard. But uh, you know, and, and, sure. and if you if you pull out of here and you leave a vacuum, somebody else's capital will come in. Yeah, and do the they, development. They, yeah. Exactly as you would expect, and and as you said, we've been goodness, I don't know how many years, but it would have been probably since the last peak in oil around what twenty fourteen uh, thereabouts that we've had this kind of cyclical turn. And as you mentioned, undercapitalization, underinvestment, under exploration, and now we're reaping the high prices uh, of, of that um, under attention, I guess, to, to an entire sector. So mm-hmm. the, the, let me ask you, because the, you know, the, um, the, the people who are advocating for this you know, great transition at you know, which they never fully get around to explaining how it's going to be funded, or, although we know the price tag is something uh, extraordinary. I think Janet Yellen uh, put it in the ballpark of $150 trillion. I guess they just print those. I have no idea where they all come from. But, but what, the, those people will say, okay, Byron, it's going to be tough. We're going to have to, um, you know, move from these these uh, these fossil ideas, I, I guess, of, you know, the old oil and gas and the old stalwarts uh, in delivering our energy. But what we're going, what we're looking forward to is this, you know, kind of utopia where we've got windmills and, um, you know, and and solar panels and and all the rest of it. So, talk, talk a little bit about how how. Um, how that doesn't quite com- how that doesn't quite compute doesn't quite deliver you know how the sun doesn't shine the wind doesn't blow and 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 all the rest of it because it seems to be a big gap between wishful thinking and cold hard reality there. Oh, for sure. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, windmills and solar have have a have a place in the world. I call it a niche. You know, uh, they are niche uh, uh, performers. I mean, just just to do windmills and solars, you know, what do you need? Oh, you need steel, which comes from iron ore, which comes from rocks in the ground, which you know you need you need coal to make the steel, make the basic steel. You need you need coal to make the pig iron, you know. And then once you have the iron, okay, you can arc melt it, but you 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 still need electricity. And where'd you get your electricity from? You know, you can't do big industrial scale uh, electric things off of solar and wind uh, because they they unless you have huge capacitors that somehow store the energy. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. want to get all electrical engineering on you here. But to do to do solar and wind, you need a lot of steel. Uh, you need a lot of exotic elements. So you need a lot of rare earths. You need a lot of silver. Um, you, you know, to, to, to the uh, the polysilicon that that is in the face of the uh, of the solar panels. I mean, polysilicon is a very exotic material that that you know. I mean, where's most of it made? Well, China. You know. Okay. Um, and. Uh, for windmills, you need all these big fancy permanent magnets in there, and these rotating machinery as the big blades go round and round and round and round. And uh, you know, where do those rare earths come from? China, you know, magnets, China. You know, um, you've got other issues. I mean, <laughs> these things have a lifetime, a, a life cycle. You know, you, you, they aren't really um, renewable in the sense that you know, after pick a number, 10, 15, 20 years, these these machines. They, they too will wear out. You know, they aren't, mm-hmm. aren't going to last forever. <clears throat> maybe you can rebuild them. They're not, you know, maybe maybe there's a recycling element to them. But right now, you know, what happens to old windmill blades? They bury them in landfills. You know, okay, well, that, that doesn't seem very renewable. Okay, that's just, you know, the, the machinery about it. You know, but, but you mentioned, you know, the wind, wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine. You know, okay, you know, you know, the sun comes up and the sun goes down. And when the sun comes up, the little solar panels are out there. And you go from no electricity, no electricity to, oh, good, we're making lots of electricity, lots of electricity. Sun goes down, oh, no more electricity. Okay, what happens when you want to run your society, you know, during 
you know, during those those nighttime periods or, you know, when, mm-hmm. like if it snows or if it's a cloudy day or something like that. Well, now you need baseload power. Well, where's the baseload power come from? Well, traditionally coal, okay? Nuclear, that'd be great, but except, you know, we've really kind of put a lid on nuclear in the West. I mean, in Germany, they're shutting down their nuke plants. I wrote an article for Bonner Private Letter about that in December. Yep. Uh, and, uh, Germany's energy Stalingrad. That was the That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Ex- uh, excellent, you, you, excellent metaphor. And not, and not a very good one for people, uh, students of history who know how Stalingrad went. It, it didn't work out well for the Germans it, the first time. But well. They, they want to yeah. do it again. I, I don't get this, you know. Yeah. Um, some people don't learn. You know, they don't want they don't learn too good as the as the saying goes. Um, so um, so right now, as we speak, what happens when the sun goes down and we need to get that base load, you know, balanced again? We need to balance the load so that literally the lights will go on so that the refrigerators keep running, people's computers keep working, so that you can charge your Tesla at night or what have you. What how do we get that power? In a lot of places in the United States, the way to get quick. Uh, almost instant, you know, electric power is you you turn on your natural gas fired turbines, and mm-hmm. you have you know you out out there in the in the gas fields, you got the pipelines. Again, pipelines are made out of this thing called steel. You know, it comes from steel, <laughs> and you know they're put together by you know big heavy machinery that are run by this stuff called diesel fuel. You know, and they're wrapped in these you know protective coatings that are made out of this stuff called plastic, which comes from this thing called oil, which comes from these things called oil fields. You know. So in comes the natural gas to the great big huge gas turbines that are made by you know Siemens and General Electric and what have you, made out of all sorts of exotic materials like titanium and you know all sorts of fancy mag- magnets in it made out of you know materials that came from China. And we spool these babies up and we generate this electricity and now we balance the load, you know. So so by day we are subsidizing you know solar power because they all have tax breaks and tax credits and everything for their solar panels and such uh, by day we're flooding the market with this subsidized solar power and by night uh you know we're we're having to you know turn on these these merchant power systems these these natural gas fired systems just to balance the load we're really ruining the economics of of a broad scale you know, electrical industry, mm-hmm. uh, electric power industry. I mean, I mean, across the country, public utility commissions in every single state are wrestling with this. I mean, you know, where the public utility goes to the commission and says, "Listen, you know, we're having to pay these high rates back to the to the homeowners for their solar panels by day on the sunny days," uh, but but that doesn't support our grid. And then, meanwhile, we have these idle. Uh, plants that we have these natural gas plants on each side of the sun, you know, sunrise sunset. We have to pay, for, you know, those are capital costs too. We have to pay for those, but we we don't use them for eight or ten or twelve hours a day. And but then we have to spin them up at night. And you know, how do how do we? It, you you get into public utility law, you know, that that is very very complex. The lawyers are having a field day with it. The lawyers and the economists who deal with this are great jobs for those guys, those gals. But. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, you know and, and there's a, there's a whole sort of thoughtless sense to it all, you know. And then uh, you know, you, you go to a place like California, which has reached something something like on a on a sunny day, something like thirty percent of the California on a sunny day is is uh, solar powered or you know re- so called renewable power. Okay, but you now do you destabilize the whole grid? You know, with on again, off again power, and they're importing power from British Columbia, they're importing power from Nevada and Utah and other places, and um, you know, how do you do that? You know, and yeah, uh, okay. the, the, you know. 
Yeah. I mean, it goes back to to what you were saying about uh, Germany and what you wrote, and I'll <clears throat> I'll link to this article below for for our listeners because it's it's really well worth uh, well worth their reading, and it, it's a little peek into the future. Just as I'm down here in Buenos Aires, Argentina mm-hmm. is a little peek into America's inflationary future if it yeah. Yeah. Uh, if it doesn't uh, if it doesn't pull its britches up. But I think you can look into um, into the future by having a look at what's going on in Germany, and if we keep down this path as Germany has done. Not only do we watch um, just basic electricity, heating uh, costs go through the roof as we've seen natural gas futures and um, and and um, oil price skyrocket over the past couple of months during this winter. Mm-hmm. Um, but also you eventually have to revert if you put a whole lot of your power load onto an unreliable, renewable, so-called renewable or green energy grid, um, when that doesn't come through or when the wind doesn't blow, as they found out in Texas uh, last year, then all of a sudden you're back to dirtier fuels, coal in the case of Germany, um, where you're kind of undercutting your whole reason for going green in the first place when you're, and I, I think it was actually lignite they went, they went back to, so it wasn't even, it was even worse. And <laughs> you think of a, there is, is there a dirtier fuel than lignite the answer no well i guess if you could burn you could burn your front lawn or something I you could rainforest yeah. yeah 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 but i mean they're burning lignite to get you know, to, to release the energy to, to to you know to boil water make steam spin a turbine and, and literally keep their lights on and keep their little streetcars running in Dusseldorf. Crazy. you know yeah so yeah. so what about people who say okay this is all well and good but but you know man has innovated past you know, paraffin, we've had whale oil, we've had, you know, we were burning, uh, you know, in some parts of the, of the world in uh, in Indonesia, they're still burning through forests. You know, we, we used to do, we used to burn various types of fuels until we got to this high grade, high E-R-O-R-I, um, you know, of the, of the petroleum, on, yeah. the energy return on energy Ener- invested. Energy return on the investment, yeah. yeah. There you go. Until we got to these high E-R-O-R-I, um, you know, fuel sources, so we've just got to have a bit of faith in uh, in technology. We're you know we've just got to have a bit of faith in uh, innovation and and tomorrow's battery cells and tomorrow's whatever's are they're just going to be so much better that uh, you know we just need to transition to the utopic future and and we'll all live happily ever after over there. What 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 say ye, Mister King? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, there's an old expression that I, I I heard it from long ago from a guy at Westinghouse, uh, the old Westinghouse Electric Company. Which was this massive company that was? It, it did everything. It made electrical appliances. It made electrical equipment. Built nuclear plants. I mean, it built the nuclear reactors for Navy submarines, things like that. And you know, but they were a very stovepipe company. They had a lot of different you know branches. And the guy said, if if we only knew what we know, uh, we could really you know we could really do much better. And when you say you know people are innovative, there's lots of patents out there. Yeah, there are. There are lots of patents out there. And if we knew what we know. Uh, we we might be able to you know to cobble something together. Um, that takes that takes political leadership and that takes policy making uh, people who actually understand this stuff and who didn't just read a couple magazine articles or didn't just you know spool up after reading you know a, a New York Times article or two about you know oh you know we're gonna we're gonna kill ourselves we're, we're ruining the world and all this sort of stuff. You know yeah we're we're ruining the world and we are we're all gonna die. Okay, let's, let's I grant you that you know, but. Uh, I mean, in, in, in rare earths, for example, rare earths, for example, uh, there was a not too long ago study uh, that I saw, heard about, and uh, 
um, and they compared patents in the rare earth arena by different countries, and they adjusted for population, what have you. For every patent on the in rare earths, which are important if you're going to do renewable, for every patent in rare earths that come that happens in the United States, there are 35 patents in China. Wow, so and this is population to, adjusted, as you, as you as you mentioned. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's but, a, know, that's an important when, caveat there. <laughs> when it comes to who's going to own the future, yeah. know, the people who are going to own the future are the people who are thinking about it and thinking about tying it all together. You know, which mm. is not to say that China's 10 feet tall, that Chinese people are 10 feet tall, that they strong as gorillas and all this sort of stuff. No, 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 no. You know, I mean, I mean, they're, they're, they're people too, but, but they, they think about it, you know, and it, and it doesn't mean that I want the CCP, the Chinese communist party approach to, you know, running life in, in America or Canada, right. even though sometimes you wander, you know, you kind of want, right, right. uh, you know, I mean, you know, how, how much of the, how much of that, you know, rule book over there have they brought over here, you know? Um, right. And, the long uh, march you know, the, through the, Gramsci's long march through the academies Gramsci's is alive long and march well. Through the academy, exactamente. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, I mean, when people when people say, uh, "Oh, you know, we have a carbon dioxide crisis," I say, "Well, you know, all I can say for sure is that, yeah, every year there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's a very, very, very small fraction. You know, some people say, "Well, it's enough to change the climate and everything else." Well. You know, I don't know that I don't know that the models are that good. You know, uh, other people who are smart, you know, have different models of it. You know, I've seen I've, I've, I've spoken with Russian scientists who cover this and they, they think that Western scientists are just they, they don't know what they're talking about. And the Russians, they know a few things about the high Arctic. I mean, half their country is in the north of the Arctic Circle. Um, uh, we, but we, we have really a, a global environmental crisis. I mean, if you look at how much, you know, crap is just being thrown into the rivers and streams and, how, you know, the offflow of agriculture, chemicals and things. I mean, you know, we're, we're ruining, you know, the, the, the ecology of the planet. Um, grant you that, you know, uh, you know, uh, I mean, that I, it just seems to me that the, the policy ought to be, you know, broader than just this, this sort of crackdown on what mm. I'd call the center of gravity of, of modern life. Which is, you know, uh, a, a petroleum-oriented or hydrocarbon-oriented energy and materials economy. You know, and when you when right. you say when, when you say, oh, you know, we've got to turn the valves and we've got to shut in the oil wells and shut in the natural gas, and you know, we're going to we're going to put the coal companies out of business. They should all go bankrupt, like the the woman who almost became uh, uh, the comptroller of the currency that Biden, uh, Joe Biden, President Biden nominated to be the comptroller of the currency. From uh, from Cornell Law School, she was a uh, an immigrant from Russia. She wrote for, from the Soviet Union. She wrote her thesis on you know a Marxian analysis of mm-hmm. you know, the economy. Or you know, she said that in order to uh, um, in order to have the future was, that we want, we're going to have to bankrupt all the oil companies. It's kind of like, well, you know, yeah, bankrupt all the oil companies means our energy is going to go away, our plastics are going to go away, our agricultural fertilizers are going to go away, our chemicals are going to go away. Yeah, and you know we're, we're I, I guess that means you just want to kill us all off. Well, thank you. You know, no thank you, no thank you. Yeah, I'm, yeah. We're just fine. We're just fine. You know, killing ourselves off without you helping. You know, so um. right, right. Yes, a soul Omarever, I think her name was. There and, you go. And, That's and didn't she? Uh, another um, another of her quotes. I, I think she she was taking the kind of scorched earth uh, approach. And uh, not only to oil and gas, but I think to banking as well. She wanted uh, something like some um, federal deposit accounts where, of course, the government would be able to control maybe mm-hmm. through a central bank digital currency or some such, you know, mm-hmm. where you where you spent your money, with whom, at what time, under what circumstances. And because, of course, 
uh, central planning worked out so well for the for, for the Soviets, where she, she was a, Mos- a school of Moscow graduate, I think. But so, uh, talk a little bit, um, Byron, about a, a potential kind of transition uh, fuel. So it, it strikes me that when people talk about, okay, let's throw all the let's throw the baby out with the bath water, let's throw the entire petro- petrochemical industry just in the drink. First of all, there's not enough room in. Uh, St. Greta Thunberg's arc for two of every species uh, at this point, let alone the whole human race. But is it is there some possibility that we could transition to say um, say a, a larger percentage of our of our energy needs relying on say natural gas or or nuclear if we could get the political will behind it, um, you know, and move away from either either um, geopolitical risk uh, in some places or i mean you know you speak about the united states there's a no shortage of natural gas there you one would think that that would be kind of a, a perfect strategy for onshoring a bunch of jobs um, reinvesting in america's uh, energy independence and its energy grid and you know having a, a somewhat of a lot well a lot cleaner source than say coal or you know G- german lignite for sure yeah well uh there are, it, it is a rough and rocky road ahead, you know, to, to change. I mean, we're looking at 200 years of inertia here. We're mm. looking at a lot of, you know, what we call the built economy, you know, the things, things that run on things that we used to have. I mean, you know, it's a, you know, we, you, the, the easements and the right, rights of way, kind of like with a railroad, you know, they, they are where they are and they were established long ago. And it, it's kind of like if you want to build a new railroad today or change the, change the, you know, the trackage of a railroad. How do you do that? You know, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I, I talked to a guy once at the U.S. Department of Transportation and I said, what's your biggest problem when it comes to, you know, building roads? He says, biggest problem that we encounter most of the time. I said, yeah, graveyards. You know, every time they want to build a road or expand a road, they have to dig up a graveyard, move all the, you know, move all the cost ca- caskets, you know. Uh, transition the economy. Every time you want to do something slightly different. You're you're going to have to dig up somebody else's graveyard. You know, you're mm. going to have to you're, 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 you break their rice bowl or dig up their graveyard. You know, I mean that's. Yep. Um, yep. So now we said, you know, the thing is, we have what we have. You know, and like I said earlier, if we knew what we already know, if people could actually synthesize what we already know, we could we can do this. And in fact, this is sort of future looking in terms of like where Byron is going with his writing. Uh, we'll talk about that in a few moments, if you wish. For sure. Um, but um, if we knew what we know and we started to really you know, tie things together, we could take what we have. We could take where we are and begin a reasonably you know, decent transition. And people who are part of it could make some money at it, you know, investment wise. Um, you know, we can't just turn the valves and shut off the oil industry because, you know, you know, a third of the, a third of the oil, you know, goes for transportation, and the, you know, a, th- a third of it goes for, you know, industry and chemicals. I mean, it, it's not just you know people driving to the mall that's destroying the world. You know, it, 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 that you're not going to, you know, don't take what you see every day when you're out and about. Don't take that as the problem or natural gas. Here, let me let me just leapfrog ahead. Couple of couple of things. I mean, we must absolutely you know revitalize the nuclear sector for for baseload electricity. Lots of great ideas out there for that. Um, there's uranium. I mean, I'll, I could get into thorium, but you know, thorium, you know yep. that, that that's a whole nother 
No, we could spend all day talking about thorium. another episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have a whole other episode talking about thorium. But you know, just just basic uranium reactors uh, have an incredible future uh, for baseload electricity. Another thing, and another point, and this is something that I'm working on like right now, and I'm going to be coming out eventually. Let's give, give me give me a month or so with a with a report. It's going to be on fuel cells. Mm-hmm. Um, you take a, a solid oxide fuel cell, you pass the hydrocarbon over it, natural gas. Or you could use diesel or, you know, you could use almost any hydrocarbon you want. But because of the, the chemistry and the physics of a fuel cell, and I don't want to get into it, but, you know, you know this isn't going to be, you know, mechanical, electrical engineering class here. But because it is an immensely efficient way of, of removing the energy from that hydrocarbon, turning that energy into electricity and c- capturing and controlling the emissions. I'm not going to say that there will be zero emission, you know, fuel cells that, you know, will never will never emit another molecule of CO2 again. But we will sure emit a lot fewer, uh, mm-hmm. you know, using fuel cells. And uh, and and when you say, well, what, 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 tell me more about this fuel cells. I don't want to get into the electrical engineering of how they work. I mean, you can you, you can read. I'll tell you more when I write about it and you can read about it eventually. And, you know, you'll know about it. But uh, but but. The materials that go into these fuel cells are they are familiar materials. And, you know, again, from the mine mill factory side, you know, copper, nickel, platinum, palladium, rare earths. Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, yttrium stabilized zirconia. Hello. You know, uh, uh, I, mean, I mean, you want exotic metals. I mean, we've got to have yttria stabilized zirconia to make these things work. You know, is there a molecule shortage of that? You're damn right there is. Right. <laughs> Not enough. But, but, but that means that if you know how to get yttria, if you know how to get zirconia, you know, you're you're on the right track here, you know, investment wise. Right. And so uh that's one example, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well let me ask there because I I, I want to get around to uh, to uh, you know your your writings and and where people can find them. Uh but but before we do that, give us a give us a kind of a broad sweep. And I don't want to undercut any of your of your own uh, paid subscribers here. But but um, you know, a, a, for investors who are out there who are you know they've been having a bit of a a bit of a turbulent ride in the markets uh, potentially so far this year, to say the least. If they've been investing in uh, you know the new shiny things and they're looking at uh, you know. Getting back to basics, as it were, and this, of course, is you know Dan and Tom uh, have been writing about their trade of the decade, which um, sort of very, very generally speaking is long energy, long old energy, that is. Um, and you know we spoke about this earlier in the year or late last year, rather, with Rick Rule at our uh, winter catastrophe summit for for Bonner Private Research. But when you're looking at at ways to actively invest in this kind of long term trend. Um, what what kind of sectors are you looking at, and and you know how how specific can you get with regards to uh, you know sharing with us things that are on your radar? Well, uh, I I'm still writing for one of the you know one of the old line Agora pubs, and you know uh, I write for I work with, work with Zach Scheidt uh, on a, a one called Lifetime Income Report, and you know every every week or so I write a little column that goes out, and, and every month I write another longer column, you know, for the, for the monthly, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a value investing kind of approach, you know, I mean, you know, just 
good basic companies in good basic sectors that can survive the tsunamis of what's going on. Uh, nothing, you know, nothing big and flashy. No Facebooks that are going to drop, you know, twenty five percent one day, you know, <laughs> that kind of a thing. Um, and uh, you know, you mean, you, payers, you mean we can't? You, you mean we can't power the world with cat videos and uh, likes? <laughs> no, no, Alas. Yeah, yeah. Really, it's just, uh, you, you just can't power the world with invitations to your birthday party, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> who would have thunk it? Hey? <laughs> yeah. All you, right. Um, and so, so that's that's what that's where that's where I'm at right now. And in, in terms of what do I talk about, I talk about the classic things. I mean, I talk about you know gold, silver as you know just basic. Uh, I mean, there's definitely an upside to them, but they also have what what I like, which is the limited downside. And even if they mm-hmm. do drop during a market crash, what's the first thing that recovers after a market crash? Gold, you know, it's it's yep. the most liquid thing there is. You know, people sell their gold to pay their margin calls on Facebook. You know, or on Tesla or whatever like that because they got slammed. <laughs> uh, but but then you know the thing is when they sell their gold, somebody else goes in there and buys it. You know, whereas it, it whereas it, a lot of other things. Why do you think Facebook dropped twenty five percent? Well, because it went no bid. Nobody yep. wanted to buy it up up there. They maybe some people, some bottom feeding sharks came in to buy it down there. But I actually think some of those bottom feeding sharks are going to wish that they had, you know, found a lower bottom. You know, um, so. Um, there's that. Uh, I I like classic traditional energy. Um, you know, I mean, just you know, I mean, a company like Exxon or a company like Chevron. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I was writing about Exxon a year ago when the share price was about you know four you know about fifty percent of where it is now. You know, when the when the dividend yield was something like I don't know ten percent, and you know, and and you know, and you say, well, Exxon, who you know, who needs to be told to buy Exxon? Well, I don't know. A lot of people seem to be told to buy Exxon because the the, the share price has gone up significantly in the last year. You know, somebody somebody was buying into it. And even with even with the people on the board who are like, oh, we're going to go ESG and we're going to decarbonize ourselves, they're making all this money in spite of themselves in the current uh, in the current oil environment. And I don't see that the, I don't see the current oil environment self-correcting. I mean, it's not like government policy, not this government. You know, not the one we got now. You know, mm-hmm, not this. Mm-hmm. They're they're not government policying you know, towards, uh, 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 you know, more oil, lower prices. I mean, I right. remember you, you may have seen our, our our wonderful Secretary of Energy, the former fashion model uh, tour guide at Universal Studios, Governor <laughs> of Michigan, Jennifer Granholm, when she was asked, you know, um, uh, what uh, what's your solution to, uh, you know, lowering energy prices? She literally laughed at the person who asked her that question. Somebody asked her, how many barrels of oil does the United States use every day? And she says, well, I don't really have that data. I'm like, you're the Secretary of Energy and you don't know how many barrels of oil the United States uses every day? I mean, why are you there? You know, why? Yeah, you, would, I mean, you, you would think of um, of all the pieces of information, that particular datum might be one that would maybe spring forth from a well-fertilized mind, but doesn't appear that that's what we're speaking about at this And it's an juncture. easy number. I mean, it's, it's in the realm of about 20 million barrels a day, you know, to run the United States. It's a, it's a nice round number. Yeah. Nice, nice round number. You just have to remember that. It doesn't, you don't even have to get down to the nearest hundred thousand or whatever. Just, right, just right. throw that out and you'll sound like you're smart, like you know what you're talking about. Um, you know, where does it come from? Well, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, the United States imports more oil every day from Russia. Than we do from Saudi Arabia or Mexico. I mean, it's like nobody knows that. You know, like oh, let's get let's, again. Let's let's get into a war with Russia here. You know, they, and, and you know, unless we can somehow make another Mexico to, you know, um, you know, make up for that deficit. You know, but anyhow, in terms of like you know what what am I looking at? I mean, 
you know, basic energy, I mean, uh, you know, U.S. Uh, US natural gas, certain pipeline plays, uh, because not all pipe pipelines. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you have a pipeline to a, to a declining energy basin, well, you know, you have a 50% full pipeline, that's not a good pipeline. If you have pipelines into the Permian Basin, which is 98% you know, capacity. Yeah, that's a good pipeline, you know? Um, yep. So uh, 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 things like that. Um, I have been, uh, you know, spending a lot of time, uh, you know, talking with, you know, with the mining plays and the processing plays, uh, you know, for the for the battery metals, the technology metals, the energy metals, um, the rare earth plays. Uh, I... Uh, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we, in, in the United States, we in North America, U.S., Canada, we have some mining plays, you know. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of the downstream plays, you know. It's just not there, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there are a couple that might turn into something, you know. I, I mean, uh, um, Canadian companies, a company like Appia Energy, A-P-P-I-A, Appia Rare Earths and Uranium is their, is their full name. They have the best deposit of a mineral called monazite, you know, in North America, maybe the world. It's the highest grade mineralogy I've ever seen. It's like un- unbelievable mineralogy. Monazite, for again, not to get into all mineralogy on you here, but uh, it's, a, it's a fabulous ore for rare earths. The problem is with monazite is you also get low levels of uranium and thorium so it's a radiation problem well they have a they're, they're in saskatchewan they have a relationship with the saskatchewan research council which has a licensed nuclear capable facility so so when they process their minerals you know when they get there they're, they're still developmental but when they get there when they process the minerals the saskatchewan uh radio you know radionuclide side they're going to take those radio radiate radioactive minerals away that's good that's a good thing um and we'll be left with the uh, with with the molecules we want, which is the rare earths, you know, the neodymium and the dysprosium and the you know the erbium and terbium and you know gadolinium and all this good stuff that you know that make things work. Uh, it's a model of a of an investment paradigm of uh, that, that sort of feeds on where the world is going in the future. Again, you know, if we could only know what we knew, you know, and uh, um, and that, that's going to be. I think, a, I think we have a title for. Yeah, I think we have a title for this episode. If only we knew what we <laughs> if only we knew what we knew. <laughs> if only we well, knew what we know, yeah. Well, yeah. Byron, uh, I I'm cognizant of the fact that we've run a little over uh time here, but I'm I, I'm always thrilled to talk to you. It's, it's such an encyclopedic knowledge of of uh, of uh, all of the aforementioned subjects and so many be- more besides. We didn't even get into uh, half of the things that I wanted to talk about, but we can we can save those for another podcast another in the future. Time. And in the meantime, if uh, as you mentioned, it looks like uh, you know trends in motion are going to stay in motion at least for the the remainder of this administration and who knows how long beyond. So you know that's that's what that means. I guess is uh, to torture a metaphor, a rich vein for you to tap with regards to individual investments in a field that you know probably better than. Uh, anyone out there. So so that's good for followers of Byron King and good for followers of Bonner Private Research. Uh, we'll be talking to Byron plenty more in the future if we're so lucky. So, mate, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. That's great. And I, I thank you for your time and your courtesy. And for all the viewers and listeners out there who watch this or listen to it, thank you so much. I truly appreciate that, you know, that you would uh, give me any of your time at all. But I, And I hope that we've helped you, you know, with your thinking. Excellent. Byron, thanks a lot, mate. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. 
you can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonaprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonaprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.